1: Welcome to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardian Speed reporter for MLB.com and Sarah Langs, researcher and reporter for MLB.com as well. Sarah coming to us live from Chase Field as she's in between her 8 trillion work shifts that she's had over the weekend, giving everyone on Twitter all things WBC stats. Sarah, I know we're about to get into it later into the show of everything that you're enjoying there, but... I don't think I need to ask, but let me just ask you, are you having a blast?
2: Oh my gosh, I'm loving it. And by the way, I want to point out, I'm currently sitting in the Chaseville press box. I have my iPad to stream the other game going on in Miami right now. It's about 8 o'clock Eastern, so Israel and the Dominican Republic are playing. But in the press box, there's a TV with the game on, and they have it on the scoreboard. All three are on slightly different timing, so I keep seeing the same <laughs> hit, like almost like a round. We used to sing yeah. those in school, so it is just surround sound baseball, and I love it. <laughs>
1: All right, we'll stop you now because I know you could go on forever, and we will go on forever later in the show. For now, we'll start with Adam Berry. He covers the Rays for us for MLB.com. He'll be joining us as we continue our quest to get around the divisions. We have the AL East up this week. And Adam, first of all, thank you for joining us.
3: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we, uh, we should start with here is... I guess it's like the the Rays and the Guardians are so similar and I always view this from like the Guardians perspective of how payroll's always such a focus and how they figure out how to be such a good team consistently without the payroll that all these big markets have. Do you foresee, I know I hate predictions, but we're doing them anyway, how do you see this Rays team maybe this year in comparison to what they were last year?
3: Yeah, I think you firsthand witnessed the struggles of the Rays lineup over the 874 innings they played against the Guardians in the American (laughs) League wildcard series while scoring one run. Um, But I think it's fair to expect this team will be better uh, than certainly the group that ended last season. You're going to have a healthy Brandon Lau, a healthy Wander Franco, uh, hopefully a resurgent Josh Lowe. That's certainly been one of the storylines of Rays camp uh, so far, along with what should be another really great pitching staff. And, you know, again, it's not a great payroll Uh, They did not sign anybody but Zach Eflin uh, as far as Major League players this offseason, which is not exactly a big-time marquee signing. But you look around camp, and there's still a ton of talent. There's still a ton of depth. That's the kind of stuff that the Rays and the Guardians as well are are very much built on. And there's a lot of reason to believe that they're going to be competitive and possibly make the postseason for a fifth straight year.
2: You mentioned Franco, and for me... I think he is really an X factor for this team. I mean that's not a, you know, outrageous statement to make, but I do think baseball fans have forgotten just how good he is because he came up our way two years ago, dealt with some injuries and then dealt with injury again last year. So we haven't seen that many games of Wander Franco, but this is elite plate discipline. He's still really, really young. I actually picked him as a dark course MVP candidate in the story a couple of weeks ago, though he doesn't have the typical sort of MVP uh, skill set. I do think that if the Rays, make more noise than expected he will be at the center of it so what are the expectations from this year and what are the realistic expectations if they're any different
3: i completely agree with you for one that he is almost flying under the radar considering last season i think he probably wasn't even a dark horse mvp candidate considering the rookie year that he had in 2021 the way that he finished that historic on base streak that you helped me with stats on every single night for about two months that it was Uh, just the impact that he made, I think Kevin Cash at the end of his rookie season said that he could be one of the most impactful players in all of baseball, and nobody really batted an eye at that. And the only thing that held him back last season was just injuries. You know, he looked like, I think I said this earlier, he looked like he invented the game in April. He was so good. And then he dealt with some lower body injuries. He had to throttle it back for really the first time in his career. Uh, And he wasn't quite the same player due to that combination of, uh, you know, the mental struggle and then the physical issues and fractured a handmate. And I mean, he still had, I think it was a 117 OPS plus, which is really good. Like that's not bad at all for a 21 year old. He just wasn't the, you know, 80 grade hit tool guy that we expected from being the number one prospect two seasons in a row. So I think expectations are really high for him. He came into camp in great shape, a little more flexible, a little more focused on mobility than just pure strength. Uh, but you can't teach that plate discipline. You can't teach that bat to ball ability I think they're counting on him to be a, a middle-of-the-order presence, a guy who plays shortstop for him pretty much every day, and somebody who is very much capable of being one of the most valuable players in, in the American League, if not all of baseball. I looked up a stat earlier. I think he's played 153 games in the majors so far, and he's totaled something like 6.1 baseball reference war. That alone, just mark that out over a full season. You would take that every single day. So I think this could be a really valuable player and somebody who is certainly, like you said, an X-factor and a linchpin for the race plans this season.
1: I know so much of this is supposed to be about predicting things for the 2023 season, but I sort of want to look back to um, to last year just because of your division had one of the most historic things happen with Aaron Judge being what he was. One, what's it like covering so many games where you obviously are seeing that unfold in front of you is the mindset of watching those types of games every time he comes up to the plate like, uh, is this going to be the next one? And I guess... Maybe just from guessing from the outside perspective, I know you're not around that club every day, but you've seen them enough. Is, is that something that now the precedent set a little bit too high for him going into this next year?
3: Yeah, I think for the first part, it very much is just like every time that guy comes to the plate, you're thinking this could be a home run, this could be a game-changing moment. And I think pitchers approach him that way. I mean, pitchers are going to say, you treat everyone the same, whatever. No, you treat Aaron Judge differently. That is a big at bat. That is a different at bat. You have to be more careful Um, And there are other guys in that lineup that you could say the same thing with Uh, Giancarlo Stanton. You certainly have to be careful because mistakes get punished. I feel like my time covering the Pirates, I saw Anthony Rizzo hit about 600 home runs, which I know is not statistically true, but (laughs) it felt that way. So uh, there are dangerous hitters around him. But Aaron Judge is such a, I mean, he is the player to watch in the division without a doubt to me. So that does set expectations really high, though, because you can say if he's not the same guy that he was last season, what will the yankees be if he wasn't what he was in the second half where would the yankees have finished last season especially as much as the rest of that lineup struggled um so I, I mean he's obviously the guy to watch i think you have to be careful about expectations but you know you look at the contract he signed the fact that he's going to be the captain i don't know how anybody's going to lower expectations <laughs> heading into the season
2: you know speaking of expectations i actually think that's the perfect way to up talking about the orioles for a minute too because They had this year, last year, where they were so much better than anybody expected, so much better than they had been in a really long time. Obviously, with Adley Ratchman, him coming up, being the X Factor there, him coming close to that rookie of the year, uh, being hand-in-hand with Julio Rodriguez in a lot of categories, including War. And now we're entering sort of a year or two of adjusted expectations for them. And I know this isn't the team you cover, but just from your sort of approach to what you see in the division, what are you expecting to see from the Orioles when the Rays play them this year? Because, you know, we'll talk about Pocota a little bit later, but I know Orioles fans weren't thrilled with the number they had. It's 74.2 right now very hard to know what year two looks like with a rebuilding team like this
3: yeah and I think it's interesting too because a lot of projection systems have trouble too with young players because there's so much variability there so if you're talking about bringing up guys from the farm like Grayson Rodriguez or Gunnar Henderson and then Adley for a full season uh, you know how much could they reach their ceiling how much could they struggle with the league punching back on them what's that going to be like you know because they could all hit their ceiling right away, you know, like you've seen some players like Julio Rodriguez do or even Adley last season when he did play, or they could struggle, like you see a lot of rookies do. You know, but everyone loves to say that Mike Trout struggled for the first time when he came up to the big leagues, and that is true. Sometimes guys do struggle. So uh, I think the expectations are probably lower if only because of the offseason that they had. You know, they said the whole thing about how it was time for liftoff or whatever, and they didn't necessarily go add the veteran pieces that you expect kind of those clubs that are expecting themselves to take the next step to take. Um, so that may have been a little bit disappointing and maybe contributing just that there's less certainty with kind of proven veterans that they can establish uh, around some of these young kids. But that's a dangerous team just because the youth, they don't necessarily know any better. I think you you heard that vibe a lot last season when they were on those big winning streaks is that they don't know anything else. They're just having fun. They're showing up every day and whatever happens, happens. And those teams can be pretty dangerous. That's I mean, I don't necessarily expect them to be in the Uh, top half of the division. I don't expect them to be among the top three, but again, when you have that much youth and you have that much talent, pretty much anything could happen. So I'm excited to see them. They were really fun to watch last year. Honestly, I loved whenever they would Uh, roll out those bullpen guys Kevin Cash said it from the first series of the season when nobody was really taking the Orioles seriously this is a dangerous bullpen and we're all kind of like all right sure yeah we'll see about it and they were I mean that that was something that that turns a mediocre team into a good team or a good team into a great team so I think that's also kind of another key to their performance is how well the bullpen can repeat what they did last season
1: I'm just sitting here waiting for Sarah to just start tweeting out the the Orioles in all capitals again, because I felt like that was like eight days straight that I saw that and I would text her and be like, um, what's going on? I know something has to be happening. So, um, Sarah, I know you've been asking this question to all of our reporters, so I'll let you go
2: ahead and do the honors. Absolutely, so Adam, we are going to wrap this up by asking you to rank the teams in the division in order that you think they will finish I'll read you what Pocota has to give you some time to think and then also to make a wind prediction for the team you cover for the Rays. So as it stands right now, Pocota has the Yankees 95.7, the Blue Jays in second 89 wins, Tampa in third 86.2, the Red Sox at 79.6, and the Orioles at 74.2. So what are you feeling there?
3: I actually think I agree with that order, but I don't have it nearly that far apart. I think probably you could see... I'm going to say the Yankees finish first, although I don't have a high degree of confidence in that, especially with the injuries that they've already had in spring camp. That team always worries me with injuries. If you get a couple of key arms and a couple of key hitters down... Uh, For whatever reason, the depth just necessarily hasn't been there. Although they also have kind of the same variability with some of their kids that could come up and take over key roles. I really like the Blue Jays. We didn't talk about them before, but I really like what they did this offseason as far as improving their run prevention. I could see them finishing first, potentially, but I'll stick with them at second, but a very close second. Uh, And then I'll I'll take the Rays at third, but I would not be surprised if they win the division either. Um, And then Red Sox and Orioles behind them, probably in that order as well. Uh, For the Rays' win total... They won 86 last season, which is really funny considering how much went wrong on the injury front that we talked about earlier with Brandon Lau and Wander Franco, plus all their injuries, their rotation should be lights out. I'm going to say I'm going to say they win 90 games still finishing third in the division potentially, which speaks to how close I think the top 3 will be and how good I think the race should be this season.
2: I agree with that about the top, you know, if we had done this even two weeks ago, I think I would have been saying, oh, the Yankees are going to win 95, 97 games, run away with this, but losing Carlos Rodon for the beginning of the year and Hurston Bader, who is very important for them on defense, really changes the outlook of the team. I agree with you about the uh, Blue Jays. But yeah, I've been picking the Orioles to finish ahead the Red Sox. I do think that the Red Sox just don't have a lot going on right now. I'm not expecting the Orioles to follow that up by winning 85 games or anything like that. But I do think the youth is hard to predict and that may end up going in their favor. But I think those two teams will be within a run or two.
3: The Red Sox rotation situation is kind of scary because if they all pan out and they're all healthy for even a reasonable amount of time that's a really good team with a pretty good lineup and a a much better bullpen but oh boy if those guys don't pitch the innings that they're expecting uh could get rough there in boston in a hurry
1: adam thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and the spring schedule. We all know how crazy this is for joining us. um, Follow all of his work, MLB.com slash raise Adam. Thank you so much. This was a blast. Appreciate it, Sarah. I know we got to get into world baseball classic talk. We'll let you do it. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, all things WBC with Sarah Langs.
3: This episode is brought to you by progressive insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy,
1: Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mandy. that's Sarah. And Sarah, you have to be absolutely bursting at the seams right now to be talking WBC. You're sitting there, it's all going on in front of you. I think fans are even on their way into the park. Um, At the time of recording this, you will have been there, what, this is your fourth day of sitting there taking in WBC action. So what has this experience been like so far?
2: First of all, I'm trying to do the math. Yeah, four days, that's right. (laughs) Feels like forever, but in a really good way. I mean, I had never attended this tournament before I talked last week with you about how much I love this tournament, how many amazing memories I have of watching it, especially with my friend JT and seeing in person hearing it in person and just feeling the energy is unlike anything I even could have predicted. I mean, we have had, I'm in Phoenix, so this is the pool that has Great Britain, Canada, Colombia, the United States, and uh, Mexico. And every game has been so much fun. This is a pool where every team has won at least one game, which is really exciting to see. And, you know, as I sort of want to get into talking about the tournament as a whole one thing that's already been really exciting that is that, as of right now is that from the pools that happen uh, on other continents the <laughs> czech republic which was one of the four qualifiers for this wbc finished not last in their pool which means that they automatically qualify from the next WBC. And as we are recording right now, we don't know who will finish last in this pool, but there is a chance that Great Britain could end up not finishing last. They're the qualifier here. And could also end up qualifying for the next tournament. So it's just been so amazing to watch. I mean, we talked last week about The lineups and the Dominican Republic, the U.S., Venezuela, all of these amazing teams. But being here and experiencing it, and I feel like this will come as zero surprise to anyone who listens to this podcast or knows you and I. My biggest takeaway is really about the teams that are sort of the little engines that could and the teams that you are not expecting maybe as a baseball powerhouse, and seeing them, I mean, even China, which went 0-4. They had some really cool moments getting a home run, I believe the first home run of the entire tournament, and things like that, so it's just really incredible to see how this sport is growing in so many different places when you're so immediately familiar with it in certain Latin American countries and in the U.S.
1: I have to ask you, because I'm sitting there, obviously, sort of taking this in from afar, just down the road, but afar. Uh, I see a tweet about the U.S.-Mexico game, about the attendance there, and it was like nearly 48,000 And it prompted me to then go and be like, oh my gosh, how many people does Chase Field hold? Because I didn't, in my brain, I'm not thinking of Chase Field being that big of a ballpark, but um, looking it up and seeing that it holds uh, over 48,500 people, I'm like, oh my gosh, this was one, the perfect venue for it, and two... I had friends who were there and everyone kept saying it felt like a Mexico home game because the crowd was unbelievable. Was that sort of how it felt for you?
2: Oh, absolutely. One of the coolest moments was, i it happened a few times actually, but there were at least two moments where the crowd just kind of, <laughs> spontaneously started singing I believe their anthem and maybe also uh, I was speaking with someone here in the press box who said they were singing sort of a rally slash fight song that is more commonly used for the Mexican soccer team called Hmm. El Cielo Lindo the beautiful sky and people just kind of broke out into song and we've all been in ballparks so much and you're kind of told what to do and that's what makes it (laughs) great right everybody clap your hands this that whatever Mm -hmm. so for people to just spontaneously start singing and everyone join in I mean I had chills and I didn't even know what the song was the first time so it was really incredible but again I mean for me the coolest thing has actually been the crowds and the games at noon. So, in all of these venues, when there have been two games, whether within Tokyo, in Taiwan, here, or in Miami, the games are at noon and then at seven. And the noon games, certainly here and pretty much everywhere, have been a bit more sparsely attended. But what's amazing is that every single person in the stands has such a strong vested rooting interest they got up, they got here at noon to watch Great Britain, to watch Canada, to watch Columbia, whoever it may be, they have a really, really strong feeling and that's actually what struck me was the very first game here was of course at noon and I thought that was loud (laughs) and then it got so much louder with the night games which have all featured either the U.S. or Mexico, if not both. Uh, and But just the energy and the sound that you hear. I mean, earlier today, we had uh, Canada winning 5 nothing over Colombia. That was kind of unexpected, I believe. And Colombia looked so good when they knocked off Mexico early on, I believe, the first day. I have no sense of time. So, Yeah, that was the absolute first game was Columbia, Mexico. So just seeing that it almost doesn't matter how many people there are, but it matters more how much they care has been really, really cool.
1: Okay, taking you out of your bracket. Um, You're, yes, you're seeing these games in person. There's so much baseball going on over the country, over the world, which is so mind-blowingly cool to think of everywhere this is being played right now. But my biggest thing, I got a cool text from you last night. We love a notable achievement. We had a notable achievement, which I thought were a thing of the past when we got rid of the seven-inning doubleheaders and things like that. But we brought back the notable achievement when there was a mercy rule. Um a perfect game going through combined perfect game going through eight innings and then a mercy rule stopped it so they couldn't get that ninth.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh, I mean this is why baseball is the best. <laughs> so with Puerto Rico and Israel last night on Monday night, Jose de Leon who has had such a journey. Right now he is a non-roster invitee with the twins. He was previously a long time ago. Considered a top prospect, never quite panned out. He threw five and two thirds, perfect innings. He had 10 strikeouts, which tied the record for the most in a WBC game. And then his teammates came in and continued. As you said, they went eight innings and The way the run rules work in the WBC is that after five innings, if you're up by 15 runs, or if you're up by 10 runs after seven innings. It was 9-0 entering the bottom of the eighth with the perfect game ongoing, the perfect bid. And uh, Israel was unable to get out of the inning. Puerto Rico scored to make it 10-0, so we had a walk-off, perfect, notable achievement with the mercy rule. I mean, so many words, and of course, the noble achievement, which you're making reference to, if anyone's not in on the joke we are making, is that there is an official rule. Then, order for a game to be a perfect game, or a no-hitter, it has to, the team has to have pitched at least nine full innings. So, because they were too good, it (laughs) technically doesn't count. Again, I mean, people are calling it that, and, you know, I never want to be the enforcing police. Um, There's one other no-hit performance in WBC history, it was in 2006, by an 18-year-old pitcher from the Netherlands named Sharon Martis. Um, He is the youngest pitcher in WBC history, and he threw seven no-hit innings, and similarly his team won on a mercy roll, so. Jeez. It is really something that the two would-be no-hitters in this tournament both ended that way, because you wonder if they got the extra few innings, but regardless, I mean, it was such a fun moment. and. It's. I mean, I understand for Team Israel fans, ideal. Of course, we have Alana listening to us, <laughs> yeah. and we'll talk to her in a bit. And she went down to watch some of those games, but.
1: And she was there at that uh, perfect, uh, I guess, notable achievement, weird walk-off game.
2: <laughs> that one, which we both have talked about how much we love that for either side, but I understand the. Yeah. Disappointment from that side, but just a really cool moment and again, you know, it would be amazing if Jose Berrios had done this, if anyone had done this for Puerto Rico, but the fact that it was someone who was on this long road back to the majors trying to get there in Jose Delam, to me that that's what this tournament is about, just like if I can, I'm hugging all the time because I love this so much, but There was the pitcher for Nicaragua who, was that yesterday? I have no sense of time. We're just going to say during the WBC. (laughs) That's a good caveat. uh, He struck out the heart of the Dominican Republic lineup. Yeah, I think it was yesterday. Uh, And then got signed by the Tigers to a minor league deal on the spot. I mean, these kinds of moments and really elevating baseball For people who aren't major leaguers, whether they're not there yet, they won't ever be, whatever it may be. To me, that's what this is about. And even for three batters, someone can be on the same level as the all-star pitcher who would expect to be getting those strikeouts. It's just amazing to see.
1: Slangs, we're going on this WBC journey with you. Uh, Next time we talk, you'll be, what, in Miami? Um, go, you're leaving here in a couple days. And I say here because I'm also in Arizona. Um, but we're so far away. I can't even see you because you're trapped inside of chase field. Um, but we'll go on this journey with you. We'll be able to talk from Miami, all things WBC again next week. I'm cutting you off for now because you need to save something for your favorite moment in baseball. And I'm sure I could bet my life that it's going to be a WBC moment. So. Stay with us. When we come back, we can have Alana join us. She can talk about her experience as well. And we'll all get to our favorite moments from baseball over the past week.
4: Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best The power of their data wasabi, another Boston based championship team.
1: Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Sarah Langs, and of course. If you listened last week, we have our new addition during this segment, our wonderful producer, Alana Schreiber. We're going to have her come on and talk, you guessed it, WBC. Um, Alana, you were out in Miami. We're stuck over here in Arizona. So did you have a favorite moment, I'm assuming, from the WBC over the past week?
0: Absolutely. I had such a blast. I like did not know baseball could be like that. I've had so many amazing moments in baseball of my life, but walking into the first game, Dominican Republic versus Venezuela, it felt like I was at like the World Cup. Like all the flags and the pride, it was so amazing. Um, huh. But my favorite moment. So to back up, a few months ago, I was listening to the podcast Mench which is all about Jewish athletes. It's pretty great. And <laughs> they mentioned this new guy, Spencer Horwitz, who was just uh, picked up by the Blue Jays. And it's just like, oh, here's a guy to, you know, a, a new Jewish baseball player. Just keep an eye out for him. So I just kind of clocked him. And then I'm watching Team Israel, and I see the name Spencer Horwitz. And I'm like, I think that's the guy from Menschwarmers. And then, you know, Israel's down one nothing, And then Spencer Horwitz ends up being the one to get the tying hit. Jacob Goldfarb scores. And it was very exciting, you know, because it was, it was kind of that feeling of, like, when you're at spring training and you see some prospect and you just kind of clock him. And then, like, a year later, he does something super cool in the majors. And you're like... Um, Yeah, I heard about that guy just a little bit before most everybody else did. Um, And then the kind of cherry on top of all of it was that... After the game, the one and only Jay Horwitz, longtime PR manager for the Mets, very colorful guy, he tweets out, "Big congrats to my grandson Spencer Horwitz for getting the game-tying hits. All of us Horwitz with no second O are so proud of you." Um, yeah, Spencer Horwitz is not actually Jay Horwitz's grandson. You know, listen, Jay Horwitz has pretty much been with the Mets since like They first became a team, so I'm just so happy he has someone he can claim. So, yeah, that was my favorite moment, and overall, just a really amazing weekend.
2: And I want to add on that Jay Horwitz is actually doing the PR for Team Israel. Yeah. So that's kind of part of it as well, which is (laughs) awesome. I love that that team is able to bring him back into the everyday PR stuff because he's kind of in the emeritus role now with the Mets. Everything Alana
1: just said, I feel like, was like speaking Sarah's language, yes. which was so funny. She was so aggressively nodding to every single point made. So, OK, one, I'm sure these are going to sound similar. Sarah's going to be just as excited for hers. Go ahead, talk WBC
2: slangs. Oh, my gosh. So I, I knew I would have a WBC moment. I hadn't really thought about. There have been so many amazing moments, even just right in front of me here. And then earlier today, this is Tuesday, earlier today in the first game here at Chase Field, Columbia versus Canada, I have been waiting in every game Colombia has played for Rio Gomez, the son of the late Pedro Gomez, to come into the game. So they actually have two lefty relievers with the last name Gomez, who have one number apart. Uh, on their uniform number. So Yaps and Gomez is number 30, and Rio is 29. This is notable because, as Mandy knows, when you're in a press box, they will usually say, now warming up, number 29, Gomez, or now warming up, number 30, Gomez. So uh, yesterday, I believe it was, my heart skipped a beat, and it was the wrong Gomez warming up. Oh, no. (laughs) I don't believe Rio was even announced as warming up because of the timing with the previous inning. But he came in, and for anyone who doesn't know about Pedro, longtime reporter for ESPN, I had the honor of working with him when I was ESPN working on baseball. Lived in the Phoenix area. Rio grew up in the Phoenix area, so him to come out here representing his mother's country and to be able to pitch on this field i mean you know an alternate reality where we wouldn't have lost pedro so tragically a few years ago he obviously would have been here but just for me personally i worked with pedro as i said and we used to hang out in uh, what was called the baseball night clubhouse as we got ready for our shows and Every time Pedro walked in, he would eagerly go up to baseball night, producer Greg Hawley, with a full Rio update. Hmm. When Rio was drafted by the Red Sox, that's actually Holly's favorite team. So that was just an amazing moment for the two of them and their friendship. But I mean, I can't think of Pedro without thinking of how proud he was of Rio. So I was sitting right here where I am now talking to you, trying not to cry, getting very teary, knowing I would still be here for many hours, so I couldn't entirely lose (laughs) it. But I mean, it was just an incredible moment. He pitched a scoreless inning came back out for the next day and gotten out and then was removed. His mother, Sandy, was here, decked out in Columbia gear. And I mean, it's just, this is why baseball is the best. This was the moment. And for them to be in this pool, it would have been an amazing moment on national TV and all that, even if it were in Miami or Taiwan or Tokyo. but. For it to be here where Rio is from and where he lived with Pedro is really, really incredible.
1: Dude, what are you doing to me? Like, I, why did you go first? I now have to follow that? Okay. Um, wow. Heavy, emotional. Mine is pointless, but we'll get to it anyway. Uh, mine's short and sweet. I think I, uh, I. I can't go without shouting out Yu Chang and watching him destroy for Chinese Taipei. It was so fun to go in each morning at over at Goodyear at Guardians camp and tell Tito what Chang had did, because they, they were playing in ridiculous hours and Tito's asleep before 7 p.m. every night anyway. So um, it's, it's been fun to say, did you see he had a grand slam? Did you see he had the game-tying homer in the six? So the organization, Tito especially, they all think so highly of him when he was with the Guardians. And I think what's so wholesome to me is he was awarded the MVP of that pool. And like how proud he is of that award. Like he is posting it everywhere. And this is one of those bubble guys, hasn't really been able to find his home, really get into like the big league career that you know that he would have dreamt of so far. So for him to be able to have this moment is so cool. And it only has a little bit to do with the fact that I think his son is like one of the cutest little kids in the world. And so shout out Winston's dad for his performance
2: oh my gosh i love that and again as we we're saying and as we've said multiple times in the last hour or so here this is what that tournament this tournament is all about it's really about these kinds of individuals so i saw that photo i saw a tweet a bit with the uh, with the trophy and you know there haven't been that many grand slams in wbc history was looking at the other day it's fewer than 15 so for him to be on that list is really really cool
1: all right slangs we'll check back in with you when you're in a different part of the country yet again uh coming from miami next week from the wbc and i'm sure you'll have so much more to share with us then but that'll do it for this week's podcast don't miss an episode by subscribing on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you're enjoying the show or you have any suggestions for us at all please leave us a rating and a review. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we'll see you next week.